So welcome to week three. We're right in the middle in ZO of our series looking at money. We as a church, if you're visiting this morning, this year are on a journey of looking at what are the giants of our culture? What are the things in our culture that where God can speak, where God can bring new teaching, new inspiration, new hope? And so we are looking at the moment, this series looking at money as one of the giants of our culture. And this morning, we are going to be asking the question, how do you manage your money well? That's right, church, a sermon on budgeting. Yes, you're as excited about that as I was. This is good. This is good. Journey with me. Don't leave. Lock the doors. Hosey, no, don't. We're not actually allowed to do that. So I want to ask you a question as we kick off this morning, and I'm going to get you to chat to the person next to you. What if you went home today and you found on your doorstep a cheque for £5,000? What if you did? Yeah, you know, imagine the scenario. Some distant relative who you never knew and obviously didn't particularly like uh, had died and left you money in a will or someone's just left it on your doorstep. Maybe you won some competition you never even knew you entered. Who cares? Just imagine you go home, you find £5,000. What would you do with it? Share with the person next to you. I'm going to grab my laptop and then we'll chat more. Okay, so what would you do? What would you do? Some of you are having a lot of fun mentally spending this. What would you do if you suddenly came across some money? Because this is the question this morning is, how do we actually make good decisions about what we do with our money? How should we be spending it? Do you know, it's interesting, this question of what you do when you come into unexpected money. The, the lottery people in this country actually did a study of this, looking at people who win the lottery and what they do with their money. Look, you can see some of the stats coming up on the screen. Um, I'll go through them in case it's a bit small. So they, they, they surveyed about 3,000 people who won about £3 million each, so a bit more. I only gave you 5,000. I'm feeling stingy this morning. What do you think they did? Interestingly, so uh, 59% straight away gave up work. I don't know how many, well, probably not with £5,000. You need a bit more for that, don't you? What did they actually buy? It's interesting. Remember, this is 3,000 people bought nearly 8,000 houses. That's two and a half each, if anyone's counting. So I'm assuming that they're treating some people. A lot of cars. Uh, it's uh, uh, 17,190 cars between 3,000 people. That's more than five each. If you're interested in the most popular car brand, apparently they bought a lot of Audis. Yeah, that's what they did, yeah. Now, what about luxuries? Anybody have any luxury expenditure that they were thinking of making? Uh, so 29% of lottery winners, Matt, I thought of you bought a hot tub. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. If you're visiting this morning, Matt is very enthusiastic about hot tubs, yeah. Um, 300 people bought caravans. Some of you think that's a luxury, some of you are horrified. But for them, clearly that worked. 
I don't know, I wonder what your luxury was. It's interesting, a similar survey of lottery winners in America, there were some more creative ways of spending their money that I found. Uh, one uh, lady uh, who was frustrated that there wasn't the TV show that she wanted to watch when she won the lottery, bought a TV production company and filmed the show. Apparently it was some kind of female wrestling thing. Anyway, yeah, it worked for her. Somebody else uh, went back to their town to see how they could bless their community, spent a, yeah, I know, oh, spent a long time pondering it, and built them a water park. Anyone in Hitchin who wins the lottery, please note that. We would like a water park. Probably undercover, though, I'm thinking, in Hitchin, yeah. Interestingly, though, is what happens long-term to people statistically who win the lottery, because you'd think, you know, you win three million, you're made. But did you know, if you look at the statistics overall, and you're talking America and this country here, for what happens to people who win millions, well over half, in fact, one study I looked at said 70% of them actually end up bankrupt. It's amazing, isn't it? You win all that money, and yet actually, they end up bankrupt. So they make such poor decisions about what to do with it that they end up blowing the whole lot. So how do we make good decisions about what we want to do with our money? And most of all, what I want to talk to you this morning is perhaps a surprising reason of why it really matters. So I want to share with you a parable that Jesus told about money. This is a story. Jesus liked to talk in stories because it got people thinking So when he had an important point he wanted to make, he often told a story that made the point. So this is one of the stories that Jesus told about money, and you may well have heard it. If you want to turn to it, if you've got Bible with you, or if it's on your phone, we're in Luke 19, but it will also appear on the screen, so you can just read off the screen. So let's read this story that Jesus shared. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. That's like a money thing. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they had gained from it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned five more. His master answered, Take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And he said to those standing by, take his minna and give it to the one who has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing... Even what they have will be taken away. So this is a really interesting story that Jesus told. And it's one that I think is often misunderstood or people are a bit alarmed by or a bit confused by. So it's good to think about 
Why did Jesus tell this story? What did he actually mean? And if, whenever we want to understand why Jesus told a story and what he meant by it, what we have to look at is the context and the moment in which he told it, because that gives us the clues as to what the points were that he was trying to make, what was the situation he was trying to speak into with the people he was talking to. So I'm actually going to start off by going a bit earlier in Luke 19 to look at what had just happened. And um, you may have heard this story before. It's one of these classic children's stories that you hear, and it's all about a tree. In fact, this apparently is the tree that, uh, that features in this story. I don't, well, that's what the internet says anyway. I've not been there myself. And it's all about this chap called Zacchaeus. Some of you will have heard of Zacchaeus because we know a few things about him. We know, first of all, that he was a very rich man. We know that he was a tax collector, and we also know he was quite short, which makes me quite sympathetic to him because I am also quite short. And so he had one of those moments that I have often had when I've gone to see a band or a gig or something, and it's standing only, and you get there, and then you spend the entire evening look at the back of the neck of the person in front of you. Has anyone ever had that happen? And I, do you not find if you're short that wherever you're seated in any type of venue, you get someone in front of you with remarkably big hair? <laughs> Have you ever had that happen? I mean, it's, it's comical how that happens to me, and I spend the whole time looking around. So this is what happened to Zacchaeus. He came, there was a crowd of people, and Jesus was there, and he wanted to hear, so he climbs this tree, apparently. As I say, Zacchaeus was a rich man. We know that would have made him unpopular, In that time, they believed that there was only a a set amount of money around. So if one person was rich, they had literally taken it from other people. There was no opportunity for people just to make more money. That was the, the sort of standard belief at the time. But even more than that, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. This was a system that the Romans devised for collecting taxes in the towns that they conquered. They got local people, local businessmen to oversee collecting the taxes, a bit like a franchise. And what that meant is that these people could basically extort as much money as they wanted from their fellow countrymen. So you can imagine that made them really popular. It made them really good at collecting taxes, but they were not very popular. So Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming and he really wants to hear from him, so he climbs the tree. And then the story tells, uh, you can see in Luke 19, verses, verse 5 onwards, that Jesus, something amazing, something really unexpected happens because Jesus spots him and speaks to him and actually says, I need to go to your house today. And um, all of the religious people around are horrified because they think this guy is a sinner. They can't believe Jesus wants to hang out with him. But what we read is that this encounter with Jesus for Zacchaeus totally transformed his life. And in particular, what's interesting is the first expression with that was a change in what he wanted to do with his money. So we read that he says, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. So the instinctive expression of Zacchaeus' change of heart, first and foremost, was in him realizing that he had made some bad decisions with money and he wanted to change that. And it's interesting what Jesus then says as he addresses the crowd who are probably shocked and probably quite excited by this development from Zacchaeus. And he turns to them, he says, today salvation has come. This guy has been saved. There's been a change that's going to transform his life for the better. And speaking about himself, Jesus says, 
He's referring to himself as the son of man. It's one of the ways that Jesus referred to himself. He says that he has come to seek and save the lost. And literally that word there, when he says the lost, he's meaning those who were, those who were dead, those who were destroyed, those who were totally without hope in darkness. He's come to save them, to redeem them, to release them. And I want you to remember that as we keep journeying through because that's an important theme of what changes when Jesus is in authority over a people, over a situation, over this world. And there's one more bit of context before I go on to talk about the specific story, because this is what happens next. Luke 19.11 says, while they were listening to this, Jesus goes on to tell them this story that we're going to look at. Why? Because they were near Jerusalem. They were actually on their way into Jerusalem. It's the start of the Easter story. So as we've remembered in our time of communion, Jesus is going to go to give his life for the world. I love the words of the song we sang. He's going to lay down his life for love. And that's a totally unexpected thing. And what we read here is that the people think he's going to Jerusalem to seize power because they were expecting a great, powerful military king to come. And Jesus realizes that they think the minute he walks into Jerusalem, that's what he's going to do. Actually, he has this totally unexpected plan. And you see in verse 11 that that, that what the people are expecting is the kingdom of God to come at once. And that's an important phrase for today that, again, I want you to keep in mind. And the kingdom of God basically refers to what happens on this earth when God is in power, when God's rule is what matters. Because there are other rules and influences in this world that can change the way people think, the way people act, the life that they have, the experience they have, the opportunities that they have, the things that happen to them. But God longs to bring his rule and his authority over people's lives so that he can bring life to the fallen, good things to this earth. And so the people are expecting that Jesus is going to seize power and bring that rule and authority right there, right then, and he knows something else is going to happen. So this is why he tells this story. So remember that. Now let's think about the characters, therefore, that are in this story. So first of all, there's this nobleman. Now if you Google this story afterwards, you'll read lots and lots of theories about it. This is, this is what I think Jesus was, was on because of, as I say, the context that he's told the story in. And really, the nobleman, I think, does represent Jesus himself. He talks about this nobleman of great authority who is going away to claim a kingdom. We know that Jesus is going to die and go up to heaven. And the nobleman is going to come back at some future point. But the story takes place mainly while he is away. And that's exactly what's going to happen for Jesus. He's going to go away to claim the kingdom of heaven. And it's going to be some time before he in person is back on earth. So he's giving some people who are going to remain on the earth in that time something to do while he's away. The second group of people in this story, which is worth a mention just in passing, is the citizens. Because people get very worried about this in this story and it can be a bit confusing. So you read about some citizens of the nobleman who hate him and they don't want him to take rule. Now what we've got to understand here is that, of course, when Jesus did go to Jerusalem, a lot of his own people, the Jewish people, God's own people, didn't respond well to it. And in the end, they were the people who called out to have him executed. So this is exactly what happened, that some of the citizens of this kingdom rejected the king who was actually 
God's provision to put in place to bring the kingdom of heaven to the earth. So that's what's going on there. If you go back home and re-review this and think, oh, I don't get that, that's what's going on there. So don't confuse those people with the third group, which is the servants. Some of you in translations, it might translate it as slaves. Now, the word there that's actually used is one, it's the word doulos. Now, what this means in the way it's used in the New Testament is someone who has chosen to give their life up, to give up their rights over their own life to serve someone else. So this word is used in the New Testament loads to describe people who have become followers of Jesus, people like you and I. Lots of us in this room, that you have made a decision to give up your own rights on your life and instead follow the rule and the authority of someone else over you. So if you have in your version saying it's a slave, understand the type of slave it is. It's not someone who's doing that without choice. It's most likely that this refers to someone who has made a decision and a commitment to follow the nobleman. And that's who he gives this money to. Now, if you're interested, uh, 10 minutes apparently is about three months' wages. So if you do the sums based on the average income of people in this country, that comes to about £7,000. So I gave you five at the beginning, so I was, again, a bit stingy. But it's not, you get the picture. It's roughly like you suddenly get a windfall of about seven grand, and you have a decision over what to do with it as a follower of Jesus, because that's what happened here. There were 10 people who were given this money, And then the nobleman goes away and they are left in charge with the stuff that Jesus, or the nobleman in this case, has given them. And the story is about what they choose to do then with that. But let's look at verse 13 because this is really important. And this is what the nobleman asks them to do with it. This is why he gives it to them. He says, put this money to work. Literally what that means there is do business with it grow it, bear fruit from it. So this money that he gives them is designed to be active. It's designed to make an impact, to change things, to make a difference. And he gives it to them because he wants to see that happen. He wants to release the potential that is in the money that he gives them. And so then later on, when he's been away for a time, he comes back to see what did they do with the things of potential that they were given How did they make a difference? How did they transform the communities and the world around them with what Jesus left them with? And of course, the first two servants come back and they have, they've made gain, they've had an impact, they've changed things, they've made a difference, they've grown the potential of the money that Jesus gave them. And it's really interesting to see that what happens as a result of that is Jesus, or the nobleman, is able to give them authority. So literally in the story, they're given rule over a number of cities. Now remember, it's a parable, it's a story. So what that's about is them being given authority over a part of the kingdom. And again, the word that's used there is one that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to the authority that any of us as followers of Jesus can have over the world around us, the people around us, the community around us. So when you're thinking of what this means, think less in terms of how many cities and more just the, the, the extent and the potential of the authority that those people are now able to hold in their own bit of this world. And it is proportionate. They, there can only be one reason that Jesus chooses to, to compare the 
10 minas guy with the five to show that there is something about the more that these, peop- that these people release the potential of what God has given them, the more they are able to have authority and influence and impact in their community. And that is important. But the overall message is they've released something of potential from what Jesus gives them. And the result is they're able to release something even more exciting. The authority and the impact and the power of the king, of the nobleman himself. Then there's this third servant who probably makes us all quite nervous because it doesn't end very well for him. And what we've got to understand is what exactly the third servant have done. Because some of us, in instinctively in reading this, we feel quite sorry for him. We think, well, maybe I would have done that too. Just put it away somewhere safe. Don't lose it. Don't mess it up. Just give it back to the guy. And we could say he's done nothing with the money that he was given. But the truth is he's done more than nothing. He has put it away. But if you look at what it says when he says that he wrapped it in cloth... Literally, the word that he uses there is the same type of cloth that in in those times they would have wrapped a a dead body in before they laid it in the ground. So what he's actually done with his money is more than just put it away. He's declared it dead. He's wrapped it away. He's sealed off any potential that that money had. And he's put it away. He's stolen something from it. It's the exact opposite of what he was told to do. So he's not just done nothing, he's done worse than nothing. And actually the no man says to him, you could at least just put it in the bank. Even the smallest thing to release the potential of that would have been good, but he's done less than that. And Jesus says that he's worthless. Literally, he actually says he's evil. And we have to remember that there are influences in this world that seek to steal the potential and the good things that God longs to release just as we as followers of Jesus maybe have the opportunity to release the good things of God, there are also things that would steal that and hold it down and try and hide it from a world that desperately needs to see it. So what is this story about? It is about money, but it's about more than that, isn't it? It's about all the things that God gives us that have potential, all the ways that God longs to release his influence and his authority and his power on this earth, this one, that one out there, just like in the one that Jesus was speaking to in the moment. But I would say to you that there is a strong meaning that is about money. And this has really challenged me this week. So let me talk a bit about this. If you look at Luke 16, so a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus says this specifically about money that so clearly relates to this stuff. He says, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? It's interesting, isn't it? Money is powerful. It's powerful in this world. You know, Human beings have instinctively turned things into money since the beginning of time. It is one of our strongest instincts to use something as money. It is a powerful influence. Matt uh, told us last week that money is the only thing in the Bible that is compared to the relationship that we have with God. And it's in Luke 16 that it says, You cannot serve two masters Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. 
The Bible says the love of money is the root of all the evil in the world. There's something about what happens to our mind if our attitude around money is wrong that is hugely influential because of the power it has, perhaps not just over us, but over this world that we live in. So what we do with it really, really matters. This is from a quote from the book, The Blessed Life. How many people have got their copy of The Blessed Life this morning? Wave, yeah, 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 good. If you haven't got one, we're giving them out as part of this series. It's free, it's a gift to you. Ask the host team at the end if you haven't got one and they'll make sure that you leave with one. But this is what uh, Robert Morris says. He says, money is actually a test from God. How you handle money reveals volumes about your priorities, loyalties, and affections. So if we go back to this verse in Luke 16 and just make ourselves uncomfortable for a minute longer about what this means about how we deal with our money, how we manage our money, is, what's this parable about? Did Jesus tell this parable just to teach us all that what we have to do is get rich, make lots of money? No, that's not, that's not the point of it. But you'll probably read stuff that says that is the point of it, but that isn't the point of it. He's got a bigger message. What he says is the way we deal with our money is vital because we have the opportunity to bring his influence to the world with the decisions that we make. Remember, this story is something about the kingdom of God. He, to- he told it because he wanted to talk to the people there about how the kingdom of God, how God's rule and influence is exerted over this earth in the time that Jesus is not physically present. And we are living in that time now, people. So how does God have his influence now? Literally through every single one of us through the decisions that we make, through the way that we carry the Spirit of God, the way that we carry that influence and authority that as followers of Jesus we can have. And Luke 16, 10 to 11 says that something very significant about that is demonstrated through the decisions we make about what to do with our money. And it is an uncomfortable challenge in the story that Jesus told, which I want you to ponder and pray over because I've been doing so all week and I still feel like I need another week to ponder and pray it through more. Because in this story, the degree to which the servants, those people who'd given up their life to follow Jesus, were able to allow his authority to flow through them to bring God's rule and authority onto the earth around them, the degree to which they were able to do this was directly linked to the decisions they made about what they did with their money. Gosh, that's interesting You see, we might think it's about prayer or how much we worship, and those things are important. But what this story tells us is there is something really powerful and significant about what we decide to do with our money. As a church, we are praying for breakthrough, aren't we? We are longing to see people healed, set free, to see lives changed, to see people come to know God who didn't know him before, to see transformation Many of us will have people, situations, things that we have been praying for for weeks, months, years, decades, where we desperately long to see God's authority and action bring change. How much money would you give right now if you could just change that thing? I would give a lot. Now, what this story says to us is actually, if we want to see God's true authority on this earth, There is a big question to us about what we do with our money and how we release the potential that's in it. Literally, I think God is saying to many of us this morning, what if you put your money where your mouth was? 
You want to see things change. This matters, maybe in ways that we will never fully understand, but it really matters. So I, I don't suppose there's many of us who wrapped our money up and hidden it somewhere and buried it. <laughs> I don't think any of us literally have it wedged under the mattress. If, if you do, chat to Phil later. Uh, he, he's, good, he's good at giving people good money advice. But what I want to ask is, have you effectively done the same thing? Because what this guy's done is he's put his money out of sight, out of mind. He's not making what we might call mindful decisions about what to do with it. And I think many of us do do that. How many of us are aware what we're spending our money on day to day, week to week, where our money goes? How many of us are making intentional decisions about how we release the potential of the money that we've got, thinking really carefully about how we use it to its best possible extent and, and making, therefore, good decisions about where it goes? You know, uh, those of you who know me will know budgeting is not my strong point. Sometimes my financial decisions over what I spend on are made by going through my pockets and seeing if, by happy chance, there's a fiver in there. <laughs> Uh, there, there, there isn't, in case anybody's wondering. Uh, but, but the trousers I was wearing a couple of days ago, that actually did happen to me. It was great. It was very exciting. Uh, I found money in them. Now, this is not a good way to live, though. And actually, this is a real challenge compared to what God is saying in this story. Because if we manage our money in the best possible way, we get the most fruit out of it. We release the most potential from it. And the more we do that, the more it demonstrates that we can be trusted with something much more significant and more powerful, the authority of the king. And I definitely want some of that. So maybe even though I'm not instinctively that interested in how I deal with my money, actually I am really interested in the other thing. So I have to think about how I deal with my money. Because it influences the authority that I might be able to have in other things, greater things. So I want to leave you with four things that I suggest that we probably need to do. Now, some of you probably do all these things already. Um, by the way, I don't, but I am blessed with a, a very financially-minded husband who is rather fabulous and does all these things. The one time I tried to do my own tax return, which was before I'd met him, I got confused and somehow accidentally managed to say that I'd left the country. <laughs> and I had a phone call from the tax office asking me to provide proof that I'd returned to the country which stressed me out quite a lot because I wasn't aware that I'd ever left it apart from to go on a week's holiday. And uh, the tax man I spoke to got so exasperated with my inability to deal with it that in the end he did it for me over the phone. <laughs> so I am very blessed now to be married to someone who is much better than I am with money. But here are four things that I suggest that we need to do. And, and they're not rocket science, but they're surprisingly hard to do. Number one, therefore, know what you have. What have you got coming in? What are your points of income? And for some of you, that's more complicated than others because you might have things coming in from different places or just not very much coming in from anywhere. But do you know what you have? What's your income? That's number one. Number two is know your needs. What are the things that you have to be able to spend your money on? Because the Bible doesn't say that we should give all of our money away and then not be able to feed our families. That's not what we're talking about here. So know what the needs are. What bills do you absolutely have to pay? But number three, I think, is the most interesting one in what Jesus is talking about. And I read a book that described it as this, know your bandits. Bandits are the things that steal money from you without you realizing it. Because they're the things that you spend on without thinking about it that add up to a lot more than you think. 
So bandits are the stuff that steal potential from your wallet because you haven't realized how much money you're giving to them. So I don't know what yours are. How many coffees do you buy a week? Do you end up buying lunch every day? I, I, would, I don't really want to add up my personal Kindle habit. <laughs> that, that would possibly be one of mine. But the question is, do you know those? And I, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong to spend money on. The question is, are you aware when you make a decision to press, you know, Kindle's great, you finish a book and it says, oh, here's another one you might like to read, and you just press a little button and then it appears. It's just fantastic. I love it. But I'm not really making intentional decisions in that moment about how I spend my money. So know your bandits. What are they? What are the things that are taking more money than you realize? And then you might make a decision to do a bit less of them because you might be able to release more potential. You know, on your seats today, you've actually got a little card, which is an invitation to the CAP money course. Now, if you are uh, as, as not instinctively uh, focused on doing all of this budgeting stuff as I might be, and you would like some support to do it, and also to do it with friends... Next month in March, we are running the CAP money course. Now, CAP do loads of amazing work with people who are in some difficult situations with money. But the CAP money course is for anyone who wants to do steps one to three of what I've talked about today. To spend some time looking at how much you have coming in, how much you have going out, where are you spending on things that you might want to cut down on, and to make some really good intentional decisions about how you spend your money. Because maybe for some of us, what God is saying is throughout March, we need to take a month to get better aware of what we're doing with our money. Maybe there's a push because God is longing to release that authority that I've talked about. Maybe for some, maybe even for many of us, there is a push throughout March to do something about that. Maybe you do need to hang on to your receipts for a month and look at what you're spending on or it's, it's dead easy if you do a lot of spending by contactless these days, you just get your bank statement out at the end of the month and some highlighter pens and go through it and just look, what are you spending on? But if you need some help with it, or you know you need to have something that makes you actually do it, because maybe it isn't going to be your first choice for what you do every Friday evening, why not come along to the Cat Money course? Paul Meacham and his team are going to be awesome running that, and it would be great to see the place full of lots of us trying to figure out this stuff. Why? Because we want to see the authority of God released in our town, in our communities, in our places of work, in our friendships, but wider than that, in this whole world. Because number four that I just want to say to you is we need to know what matters, what really matters And money is important, money is significant because of the influence that it carries itself, the potential it carries itself. But wider than that, because of something that the way we choose to deal with it indicates about us and therefore the authority that we can carry and release and can flow through us into other things in this earth. This really matters. How much might it change things in our community if we as a body of people Jesus followers, people who've made the decision to give up our own choices over our life. What if we did take March to look at our money, 
to be really intentional about how we spend it, to give it to God. And more than that, to say, God, we long to be able to be people who are good carriers of your authority in this earth in the time that you're away. Because we long to see change and breakthrough and healing and all those things, all that goodness that God longs to bring to the world. This is Robert Morris again in The Blessed Life. He says, without a doubt, the enemy of your soul would do anything to keep you from discovering God's principles governing financial stewardship, giving, and blessing. Why? Because once you do it, it will transform your life for the better, but it will do more than that. It will impact the kingdom of God. So money might feel like a small thing, a boring thing, a nuisance thing. It may be the thing that keeps you up at night. Some of us here really are struggling financially right now. The problem is we can't even pay the essentials, never mind think about releasing anything else from it. But we know that money and the decisions we make about what to do with it have a greater significance than perhaps we ever realized.